In February 2010, in Ranchi City, India, anthropologist Alpa Shah received a call. 2 p.m. tomorrow was all the caller said. On the other end of the line was a member of the Naxalites. Following that call led Dr. Shah to join a Naxalite guerrilla platoon on a seven-night journey through the dense, hilly forests of eastern India, through an area in dangerously close proximity with opposing armed state forces. The Naxalites, presented in the media as terrorists, are a Marxist guerrilla movement engaged in a decades-long battle with the Indian state. Made up of ideologues and lower caste and tribal combatants, they seek to overthrow a system that has abused them and perpetuated deep inequalities in India. This is one of the world's most intractable and underreported rebellions. Dressed as a man in an olive green guerrilla uniform, Dr. Shah was the only woman on the track and the only person not carrying a gun. She decided to make the perilous journey to better understand why some of India's poor have shunned the world's largest democracy and risked their lives to fight for a fairer society. Alpa recounts this journey and her time living amongst the communist guerrillas in Night March, published in 2018 by Hearst and shortlisted in 2019 for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. Welcome to Afterwards, this series that focuses on six books that shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent non-fiction publisher. I'm author and journalist Sonia Falero, here talking today to Alpa Shah, who is joining me from New Zealand. Hello, Alpa. Hi, Sonia. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited to get this uh, opportunity to talk to you about your incredible book. Thanks so much, Sonia. I'm, I'm just thrilled that I'm doing this with you. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. I think uh, we can start from the top. As far back as you go in the book, you're talking about the late 1990s when you were conducting doctoral research in Charkhand, which is a state in eastern India that is known for its indigenous communities, its mineral reserves, and its guerrilla activity. At the time, as you write in your book, you saw the Naxals as protection racketeers, not unlike the Sicilian mafia, extorting money from state development schemes and big business. Can you describe some of the things that you saw or heard that formed this initial impression? Yeah, sure. Just to give you a bit of context. So I'd been there for about two and a half years by the time I came across uh, the Naxalites. You know, I'd been exploring how development funds from state development programs get down to these very poor Adivasi communities, or rather how they don't. And it was obvious that, as in many other parts of India, what we'd call corruption was very rife. So any development scheme that came into the local area, for example, a building of a road, everybody would take a cut, a percentage of uh, the money that was supposed to be coming down. So all the state officials from you know the junior engineers to the assistant engineers to the clerks would all take a percentage that everybody knew about of the scheme of the money that was supposed to be used for the building of the road.
road. But then there'd also be all these contractors who were chosen by local politicians, MLAs, as they're called in India, um, who would get the contracts to implement these schemes. And they themselves, it was expected, you know, would take about 10% off the money of the construction project. And so this was normal, very regular practices. Everybody knew about it. In fact, if you didn't take some money, it was like bizarre. So this had been going on for many years. And the Naxals came along. They were trying to expand into these forested regions because they were remote territories. You know, um, the state wasn't as present as it was in some of other parts of India. It was forested area, great territory for, you know, guerrilla warfare, guerrilla insurgency to expand their strongholds. And the way they came into these areas is that they elbowed their way into these informal economies around state resources. And they basically had their own men who got all the contracts. So how did they do that? They first disarmed the area. So they basically, you know, went in with their muscle power and they took all the arms of all the local elites. And once they had control of the monopoly of violence, you can call it, you know, of the area, they could basically call the shots. They'd say, okay, well, now our men, our chosen folks in the local area will get these contracts. So really, they did like what all the other kind of powerful elites had been doing in the area for a long time, but they did so because they could really control, you know, the arms in the area. So I just thought, oh, you know, what's going on here? It's just, it's simply an extortion racket. It's the same as how the Sicilian mafia have operated, you know, they're just uh, protection racketeers. And that was my impression. But this was, you know, then I was leaving Jharkhand to come back to write my PhD. And, you know, I left it at that, at that time. Yeah, you came back after six years, is that right? And then you decided to go undercover? I came back to England, and I wrote my PhD. And then I was watching from afar. And I realized that Lots and lots of Adivasis, these indigenous tribal people, are joining these guerrillas. And I thought that, you know, clearly something was going on here that I hadn't understood or, or that was maybe happening in an area once they'd taken control of these local protection rackets. And I found it astonishing because, you know, these Adivasis had generally kept most outsiders away, yet here they seemed to be joining these other outsiders who are these guerrillas. And this movement, on, in theory, was supposed to be fighting for a better world, fighting for a communist society, you know, one that we haven't seen yet, where we would bring about a more equal world in one of the world's most unequal countries. And there were, you know, the poorest people who seemed to be joining them. So I thought, I've got to try and understand what's happening more carefully. So I tried to return to Jharkhand. But by this time, you know, I was already a lecturer at Goldsmiths. It's hard to, you know, leave your job behind. So it was another six years before I could return to Jharkhand. And this time I returned for a year and a half. And I decided to try and live in one of the guerrilla strongholds amongst the Adivasis, again, amongst the indigenous people. When I began the research, I really, to be honest, I never thought I'd meet a gorilla. I never thought I'd, I'd see one. But I realized very soon after that I was living in an area where almost every single household had somebody who was connected with the guerrillas in some way or another. They had either, you know, a cousin who was in the guerrillas, they themselves had been and had now returned or 
Um, and I realized that the gorillas were everywhere. You know, they probably watched me from afar, These the gorilla leaders and the gorilla armies. And over time, they invited me, you know, into the forest to come and meet different members of the leadership who were in the areas. And over time, I got to spend more and more time, uh, not only in the villages amongst the Adivasis, but also with the gorilla armies. Um, yes, yeah, so this was all happening against the backdrop of the Indian government declaring that this was the greatest single internal security threat the country faced and sending in battleships to surround the areas where I was working. Uh, thousands of Central Reserve police forces and border security forces were sent to surround these guerrilla strongholds. And of course, I hadn't realized any of this was going to happen. So my research yeah, unintentionally became more and more undercover because I was always afraid that you know I was going to be kicked out if uh, the state found me there or state officials found me there because journalists, human rights activists, lawyers who were trying to get access to these areas were all being sent out. But I just got drawn into the lives of the people I met and trying to understand in more depth their stories. And yeah, that's, that's how this night march came about. Okay, so let's move to 2010. The guerrillas invite you to join one of their platoons on a seven-night trek. The trek was to cover 250 kilometers. You were going to be the only woman. You were the only person not carrying a gun. Firstly, how did they trust you enough to invite you on something like this? I don't think anyone has ever been invited on something like this, so dangerous, so intimate, so fraught with security challenges, not just for you, but for them. You know, they didn't invite me <laughs> as much as I imposed myself on them. <laughs> I had been living in these remote forests for about a year and a half by then. And I think, so what happened is I wanted to interview a senior leader of this movement who was crucial to understanding the history of the movement, who I had never met. You know, in fact, he was not well enough to ever come to the regions where I was. So I had been constantly asking, please, please, you know, I want to interview this leader. So eventually, right towards the end of my stay there, I got this call and said, you know, which basically said, turn up at so-and-so point, you know, and this point was in a different state. I had to figure out how to get there, took a bus there. They said, you'll be met by so-and-so person. He'll be wearing so-and-so cap and he'll be holding, you know, a loaf of bread. And so I turned up and then I didn't know where I was going, who I was being led to. And I ended up in this camp, which was in the state of Bihar, uh, which is, you know, north of Jharkhand, where I was about 250 kilometers north. And I was taken to what happened to be the state level conference of the CPI Maoists, the Communist Party of India Maoists, that where they were discussing, you know, how the last uh, few years had gone and making plans for the future. And that where this leader was and so I stayed to interview this leader and uh, in fact you know this official interview turned out to be extremely boring because I was given you know the, um, the regular line and then um, I realized while I was there so you know this was a gathering of about 400 maybe more gorillas who'd or who, over several days who were coming in and it was an extraordinary situation because there was this it was in this forest in Bihar, an entire city had been created in this forest. You know, there were 
medical tents and there were computer tents and there were tents for meetings and tents for sleeping and a whole kitchen around an underground well that they had dug out had been uh, formed. So there were lots of people there and people had come from, you know, all over different states to get together. They'd traveled several weeks on foot to get there. And I realized that actually this platoon um, was leaving back from this camp to return to the area where I normally lived in Jarka. And I asked them, please, you know, can I return? Can I go with the platoon on foot? What I knew by that stage was that, you know, I had understood so many aspects of this movement. But one thing I hadn't done was much like they did every night, you know, uh, walking through the country. This was what they had to do all the time. And I'd walked with them many times before in areas they controlled, in the guerrilla strongholds. I'd sometimes even walked overnight with them. But this was a march of a different sort, which was, you know, going from one state to another across territory they didn't control, so through enemy zones, as they would consider it. I wanted to know what it was like, you know, to do that. And, you know, now I look back and I think, oh, God, I was crazy, you know, as mad you know would I do that again now um but you know when you're in when you're in the midst of it when you're driven by trying to understand you know the situation you're you're so in the thick of it and you know you it seems completely normal to want to do that as part of the last stage and so they actually said no you know you can't go it's too dangerous you know we're not letting you go and and so I just kept asking and asking and eventually well they actually they didn't tell me anything they just somebody brought me a box and and I opened it and you know there were a pair of green trainers in there and I realized that I was allowed to go because um, I'd only come with a pair of sandals and was very unprepared so you know, I don't know what made them trust me. Perhaps they'd observed me for so long that they probably believed by then that I was generally was a researcher who was really had scholarly interests. And, you know, they are, there's lots of intellectuals amongst them. They themselves are kind of interested in critical research on the movement to say things that maybe they can't say themselves, you know, about the movement. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what, why they allowed me. Maybe it's just the persistence of a researcher and knowing that I was there to really try to understand from all kinds of perspectives what was going on. Yeah. You know, as a writer, of course, it's an, an incredible get. You probably didn't imagine that you would get such an opportunity. So you were I'm sure, as I would have been, incredibly enthusiastic and, and excited at the potential of the material that you would find and how it would help you to understand the movement. But at the same time, I imagine there would have been all sorts of challenges. What were some of the challenges that you faced being a part of this night march? Well, I mean, I think probably the greatest challenge was the physical challenge. I've never done something of that nature, like to march endlessly for so many hours in the night without the light of a torch, you know, sometimes, you know, no moonlight. I mean, you can't see where you're going, learning how to walk in the dark across rice fields, but you could easily fall down the side and, and just the utter exhaustion of it all. Like, it's just so tiring. I just always used to compare myself to them, uh, you know, 
put my own position into relative, um, you know, think relatively in relation to their lives. And, you know, there were these boys who had malaria who were marching, you know, there were these senior leaders who had, you know, whose ankles would give away, who had serious kind of gastric problems, who, who had to do this daily. I mean, they had no option now, you know, because if they didn't, they could get caught and they'd get killed or put in jail. And for me, there was always this option of, you know, trying to, that I could leave. You know, they had planned routes out for me at many different points. If I couldn't make it, if I was too tired, if I wanted to leave, you know, I'd be sent out. I could just become myself, you know, (laughs) take off my uniform and wear a sari and get out, you know. And it was knowing that which enabled me to continue. Uh, You know, it gave me the strength, um, you know, to not give up. Did you have to have conversations with them where you made your politics very clear? Was that even something that they needed to know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's throughout the book, you know. I mean, the first question was I was asked is, what's my take on violence, you know? And a lot of the book is about my debates with Gyanji, who was one of the senior leaders of this movement, you know, upper caste uh, leader from a very well-read background, you know, is clearly an intellectual extremely bright. One of the things we talked about was their perspectives on the indigenous people, uh, the Adivasis, and their idea was eventually they're all going to get obliterated with development. And, you know, their lives, which I valued very much, are going to get erased. So, you know, I had lots of conversations about how Adivasi lives were much more egalitarian than they were assuming, how in fact, you know, they could be the basis of a different kind of future world, how they were killing off all these people. Um, You know, I mean, lots of, I was very open with them throughout. I constantly debated their ideas. I discussed my own ideas in relation to theirs. And the book is full of these tensions. Gyanchi is one of the very interesting characters in the book. And of course, Gyanji is a pseudonym. Uh, None of them revealed their real identities to you as much for their safety as yours. But one of the strengths of the book is that it's peopled with these various individuals who you spend so much time with and you really bring to life. We have Gyanji, who, who, as you mentioned, has been with the Guerrillas for 25 years, uh, very well-read, upper-caste, probably comes from a well-off family. You talk about one of his young lieutenants, Vikas, who appears to be a protection racketeer from what you saw. Uh, You mentioned Prashant, a young man of about 30 who didn't enjoy school, ran away from his farming village. These are very different people. What are the reasons that they were attracted to the movement? Surely knowing that the outcome was generally going to be one of two things, either death at the hands of the security forces or prison. Yeah, so what, you know, you're so right. The movement is made up of very diverse kinds of people. So on the one hand, there are these leaders who are high caste, who are very educated, who come from urban middle-class backgrounds, who basically cut off ties with their past, cut off ties with their families. They've tried to decast themselves, declass themselves. You know, that's what they call it. They've kind of tried to get rid of all their baggage of their past. And they've, like Gyanji, who once, you know, couldn't uh, step on a light line of ants without chanting mantras, has found in this movement a different form of renunciation, you know, of his life and a different kind of liberation. So they're 
their ideal is to create a kind of more egalitarian world sometime in the future. But this has also affected the practice of their movement where they try to, you know, really get rid of, although I show in Night March how this isn't the case, that the baggage of the past always hangs on to us. They try to get rid of, you know, their caste backgrounds and their class backgrounds. And then there's people like Vikas or Kohli, who was my bodyguard, you know, who who are from these very poor tribal communities, generally not literate, who have lived in these forests and, you know, who often go and migrate to brick factories to work as construction labor for six months of the year and then come back to maybe go to a completely different part of the country again to work for another six months. And what was extraordinary about these Adivasi foot soldiers was how they seemed to move in and out of these guerrilla armies as though they were going to stay with an uncle or an aunt. They were leaving their homes. So Kohli, for example, my bodyguard, you know, he he had had a fight with his father about what was a glass of spilled milk. Uh, literally, he spilled a glass of milk in his father's tea shop and his father was really angry and, you know, gave him a slap and um, Kohli was really angry. And so he asked the zonal commander of the area, you know, I want to come and stay with you, you know, uh, for some time. And the zonal commander said, no, you can't come because he was friends with his father and he knew that the father needed him back at home. And and Kohli, you know, so he's, he's like a 16 years old, you know, he insisted and then he went and he found somebody else to get into the movement through. And so what I realized that is that the Naxalites had become part of the kinship networks of this area. They'd become like an extended family in these areas. And obviously, then you try to figure out how had this come about? Because usually upper caste men who have come into these areas have been, you know, state officials and they've been, people have tried to stay away from them. Like when police officers used to come into the area, Adivasis would literally run into the forests and hide from them. And then I realized that, you know, it's so many of these little small things that matter. For example, how an outsider or how one enters the house of an Adivasi, whether one takes one's shoes off and goes in, whether one sits on the floor like everybody else or demands a chair to be found that there are many chairs in these areas. And so all these little, little things, which the Naxalites, these Maoists, were very different because they had these egalitarian ideals and they tried to change practice within their own parties. So all these little, little things had meant that they had gained an acceptance amongst the Adivasis in a way in which most other outsiders hadn't. And so this meant that over time, you know, what's generally said of these areas, of situations like this anywhere in the world, is that People come into these movements because of reasons of greed. So, for example, they're going to make money from the movements. Or they come in because they've got some genuine grievance. So, for example, the Naxalites were, you know, fighting against the forms of development that the state had taken, the ways in which it was screwing Adivasis, and Adivasis genuinely felt that, you know, they represented the movement. Or they say that people are actually you know, stuck between two armies, or they say that, you know, they've been forced to join the guerrillas, you know, the guerrillas come in with their arms, they're, you know, forcibly recruiting people into the armies. You know, these are the kinds of narratives that are generally uh, spread about not only this movement, but, you know, many such movements, Shining Path in Peru, for example. And I, what I realized that the reality is like so much more complex, you know, it's not any one of these things. It's this kind of intimacy that's built between such movements and local communities, which really matter to 
to how such movements can spread. And over time, you can get people like Vikas, as you mentioned, you know, become like a protection racketeer. They use the movement to line their own private pockets and use it to, you know, rise up the class and caste ranks. People like Gyanji eventually called him, you know, a Frankenstein's monster. The movement was giving birth to these people who were then destroying the very ideals of it, you know. So you get a whole variety of people who join. And and then, of course, there are all these women um, who come in. So what I was interested to show is this range of different characters who represent, you know, different types of people who come in and how they're both, you know, attracted to the movement, but also how they totally undermine its aims and how they all fall apart in the process, you know. Vikas ends up trying to kill Gyanji and forms a gang out to destroy this movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that you've really drawn out very well in the book is that while the aims of the Naxals, uh, you know, and, and also how they treated the Adivasi villagers was very noble, they also have this incredible tendency to undermine their credibility. They seem to have failed to win support outside of the areas in which they work. And without a doubt, the primary reason for that is the violent tactics they use, not just against security officers and, you know, symbols of the state, but also against Adivasi villagers. I mean, they shoot dead people they suspect of being informers. So can you tell us a little bit about this tension, you know, and and, um, how you watched it playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think this is such an important issue because taking up arms to fight for a cause, a noble cause, it may be presented as, is always comes with this real danger. I mean, the danger being that you start to reproduce the violence of the very people that you are fighting against, you know. And so in the Maoist case, you know, they have now been reduced to focusing on the use of arms. The arms have become the major issue that they spend all their time on, you know, training people to use arms at the expense of really working with um, local communities. And in such contexts, It's not just the kind of obvious violence of, you know, shooting down police informers, people that are killed in the process of trying to kill, you know, the state forces, but it's also you're valorizing the kind of oppression that you're facing from your enemy and you're reproducing it within your own armies. And this is a real, really destructive force. Alongside that, you know, is also what you mentioned, which is that on the one hand, you know, the communities that you're working with, you treat them with respect and dignity, but it's only up to a point because actually you don't really want to know how those communities function. And gender was, you know, how they understood gender relations was a real big issue for me because I was always um, really surprised throughout my entire four and a half years of living in these Adivasi villages at how different they are to a lot of Indian villages in the plains, for example, or even, you know, being a woman in a city in, in India. And the freedom that, you know, women had in everyday relations, you know, the freedom to walk in public spaces, the freedom to drink, you know, openly with men on the same terms as them, you know, this is drinking alcohol. The Naxalites, you know, never always had this idea of, you know, the sexual exploitation of Adivasi women wanting to change things amongst Adivasi society for the better but in fact you know they didn't realize you know what already existed 
What in fact happened is that they imposed their own kind of patriarchal assumptions on Adivasi communities. They tried to stop these um, drinking practices, constructed anti-alcohol campaigns in these areas, not realizing, you know, what the values of these were to women. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up thinking about Somvari, this lady, um, you know, this wonderful woman who I lived with, you know, who I called Didi, my sister, you know, in, in the village and going off to International Women's Day celebrations on the 8th of March with her into the Maoist uh, celebrations of them in the forest and thinking, you know, well, did Somwari really need Clara Zetkin, <laughs> the Russian revolutionary, to liberate her? So, yeah, these are, I think, some of the big contradictions and tensions that I'm really interested in drawing out in Night March. Yeah. Well, I mean, all over the country, the, the Indian government for many, many years now has used the excuse of insurgencies and uprising to perpetuate the most extraordinary human rights abuses. And uh, what you've observed with um, the Naxals is an example of that. But you have been studying this movement now for a couple of decades. And here we are in 2020. Where does the movement stand? What is the way forward for the Naxals and indeed for the Indian government? Is there really any way to rescue this situation? Uh, yeah, the the movement right now is being totally strangled. It exists in, you know, a few small pockets of a few small parts of the country, as I understand it, because, in fact, you know, the brutal counterinsurgency operations have in some ways been successful because the government now control vast territories. But this is by force, not necessarily with the consent of local populations. People are, are being incarcerated as Naxals as a way of kind of repressing, you know, protest. So all, all over the country, people are being not just in the forest, but also in the cities. Uh, people are being incarcerated as urban Naxals simply when they have nothing to do with this movement. You know, they're protesting for genuine reasons of trying to create democratic spaces in the country at a time when democracy is, you know, really under threat. And the word urban naxal is used to repress them. So this is kind of quite ironic because on the one hand, you've got a situation where this movement is being strangled in the forest. But on the other hand, you've got all these urban naxals, you know, proliferating everywhere according to government rhetoric. So in fact, it's giving a new leash of life to the idea of this movement, you know, the spirit of the struggle, not the practice of it, but, you know, the the idea of, you know, fighting for a better world, you know, and which naxalism has kind of come to represent. And, you know, so it's a kind of farcical situation, you know, as to what the naxalites in the forests do or what the government does. I mean, the naxalites clearly need a terribly to rethink everything that they're doing in terms of the state. You know, we need a much more caring state, a state that's going to give amnesty, first of all, to all those people that have been put in prison, a state that's going to have a complete turnaround in their change in development policy, you know, not be there taking away the mineral resources of these areas for large multinational companies giving nothing back to the locals, you know, a much more caring state. And we need true processes of democracy to be allowed to flourish. We need people to be able to dissent and protest when they think that democracy is threatened. You know, we need them to be able to do so safely with the protection of the state. We need a caring state. I mean, we need we need a revolution of sorts, really, on all sides. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Papa, I have so many more questions for you, but I'm afraid um, we have to end sometime. I do have one last question to ask, which is, to end every episode of the series, we're going to ask our guests about the one book that shaped them. So, Alpa, what is the one book that shaped you? Uh, this is a terribly difficult question. And I, I just, yeah, <laughs> so many books shape our lives that make us, you know. Perhaps for me, really, uh, what was quite foundational was books that I read when I was an undergraduate student at Cambridge and was introduced to James Holston's Modernist City, <laughs> which is something very different to what we're talking about now, which is a book about the making of Brasilia. And he, James Holston, was this architect who had been trained as an anthropologist and he goes about trying to understand what the plan was, you know, what the plan was and what actually happened in practice. And this is a famous city built across, you know, modernist city, a utopian city built to get rid of, you know, the inequalities of the past by a famous architect, Oscar Niemeyer, with the help of Corbusier in France and, you know, a whole team of people. And, you know, governors were supposed to live next to janitors and in the same way in the same kinds of houses what James Holston reveals across the time of his research is that you know they forgot about the construction workers who were going to build this city what was going to happen to the construction workers nobody ever took account of them and so you have these huge slums that have developed on on the edges of Brasilia and you know you can call them satellite cities if you want to you know have a better name for them uh, you know so there was this book there was James Fairhead and Melissa Leach's misreading the African landscape, which is a similar thing, you know, this narrative of degradation of the African environment in, in New Guinea, where there were these pockets of forests and these pockets of forests, in fact, they found over time through anthropological research had been recreated by the communities. So it completely subverted the whole desertification paradigm and showed the human potential of, you know, us as ecological beings and our ability to reforest areas, to live in the environment in a very different way to what was being assumed of us. So I think these books, you know, books like this, you know, there was a series of them which really changed me because uh, it made me see the potential of doing, you know, long-term field research, really trying to understand the ordinary people's viewpoints and seeing the kind of radical potential in human beings themselves and, and you know, the, the tragedies of top-down programs and plans thought up in ivory tower offices. And I think it, they really made me want to be an anthropologist um, uh, or at least, you know, get trained as one. These books had a big shaping in, in my life and where I've ended up right now, all these years later. Alpa, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations again on your extraordinary book. Thank you so much, Sonia. I, I really, yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. It was wonderful to, to have your own reflections on so many of these issues at the same time. Thank you. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Alpa Shah for taking part in this episode. Please rate and subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. It really helps people find out about the show. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers, Alpa Shah at Alpa Shah 001, and me, Sonia Falero, on Twitter. And get news on the latest Hearst books by subscribing to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. I'm Sonia Falero. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. If you like what you heard, 
We have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWORDS25. That's AFTERWORDS25, and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.